Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a really important conversation for you today. It's with author Donovan X. Ramsey. We're going to get to Donovan in a second. But first, I want to thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. And don't forget to stick around to the end for our special surprise celebrity close. Donovan X. Ramsey is a journalist and author who writes about issues of identity, justice, and patterns of power in America. His reporting has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, GQ, Wall Street Journal Magazine, Ebony, and Essence, among other outlets. And he's been a staff reporter at the Los Angeles Times, News One, and The Griot. He just released, to much critical acclaim, his debut book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era, which explores how black America survived the crack epidemic. Donovan, welcome into the back room. Hey, Andy. Thank you for having me. Well, you wrote this amazing book that just came out called When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era, which I want to get into that and some other things shortly. But first, I want to peel the Onion back a little bit, go back in time, talk about Little Donovan, your childhood. What kind of kid were you? Um, I was incredibly bookish, maybe like a little bit anxious. I've always been like kind of like a neurotic person. And my mom talks about when I was a kid, I would get upset and I would start stacking things mm-hmm. like VHS tapes or or pillows. Um, also that I was a very bossy kid, which uh, I'm still very bossy, sadly. I'm I'm working on it. So you're still bossy. Oh, you're still bossy, but you're not stacking pillows anymore. Or are you? No, I no, I like white books. That's how I uh-huh. channel the the anxiousness. I just stack article and article and article until I'm like, okay, I've I've arrived at something. Mm-hmm. Good. Fortunately for you, books stack really well. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Were you always a politics news? culture nerd when you were little or did that kind of hit at a later point it came later i mean i would say that i was always very curious about the world but in terms of current events i i was not interested at all until maybe high school i was interested in things like um uh the city of pompeii (laughs) when i was a kid those are my special interests or um the like kennedy assassination Mm -hmm. that Things that felt like big and sweeping and sort of like epic that that's, I could mm-hmm. dig into that for, for, for years. And, um, yeah, that was funny. We had a sort of like a pretty small bookshelf growing up. My mom had all of her favorites, mostly, um, fiction and poetry written by black women. And then my sisters kind of shared a shelf of their kind of like, uh, sweet Valley high sort of like young girl, um, like romance lit. And mine was Greek mythology, um, like destroyed ancient cities, uh, assassinations. <laughs> so, I, so I guess the answer so, to my question is, yes, I was a nerd. <laughs> yes, I was, I was a huge nerd. And maybe, you know, there are some threads of that stuff that kind of like still goes through my work a little mm-hmm. bit. Have you been to Pompeii? No, I haven't. I haven't. I actually go. just. It's crazy. Yeah. Did did like you do like a whole tour and like go to like museums and stuff? Everything you mentioned really hits home with me because I love all that stuff. And Pompeii, the crazy thing about Pompeii is you literally see the forms of these people in their last act, their last mm-hmm. moments. So it is something yeah. you should try to get. And, you know, Italy's not that bad either everywhere else so yeah. not a bad place to go <laughs> good vacation you know, i actually just i like just came back from italy and it did not occur to me to go to pompeii i spent um a few weeks in in rome in venice and oh, milan man. it was my first time in italy but you man, like a I couple really hours just away let, yeah i just let little donovan down by not <laughs> going to you know exercise my morbid curiosity well i suppose little donovan's excused you for it well, well, well no, <laughs> maybe you've redeemed yourself and so you grew up in columbus ohio you wrote it, it was like growing up in a steel town where nobody talked about steel what does that mean mm. 
Yeah, that I was sort of planted, I guess, in in that crack era that I wrote about. Mm-hmm. That my mom was a single mom. She raised me and my sisters really in, I would say, some pretty significant poverty. I didn't realize it until I was older that we were very poor and that we lived in a very poor neighborhood. But I knew that there were things about my neighborhood that, um, that I saw mostly on the news and not my favorite sitcoms. And my mom really shielded us from what was going on, but things would spill into our lives, like the gunshots that you would hear over dinner. And we just knew to get down on the ground. And when the gunshots were gone, we would get back up and finish eating dinner. Um, or I had my first bike stolen by a drug addict. Um, I found out later that he was sort of like a neighborhood drug addict, but no, I, the air had gone from my tire and, uh, I didn't want to go home and tell my mom that I had messed up my bike. So I was sort of just standing around trying to figure out what to do. And this guy was like, Hey, I can fix that for you. (laughs) And so I handheld my bike and wait five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour. And the bike never comes back. So I eventually go home and tell my mom and she's really disappointed. But then I hear her over the phone later say, Donovan gave his bike to a crackhead. And those are the kinds of things that stick with you, mostly because it was sort of that adult world. It was that layer of adult understanding that is just out of your reach when you're a kid. And for me, those questions of exactly what was going on in my neighborhood really stuck. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I became a journalist, I think that I was always working towards trying to understand that period a little bit better. As a journalist and as a black journalist, I'm interested in your early influences. Well, I would say first that I come from a family of serious talkers. So uh, my mom, I mean, she can talk like nobody's business. She can tell a story. She can give you advice. She's really funny. So I really got into journalism um, because of like the storytelling component Mm. and because I really do enjoy talking to people. um, And I wanted to have some sort of impact on the world in kind of a corny way. So journalism seemed like the most direct way to do it. Media seemed like the most direct way to do it. I was like a local news kid. There was a guy named Jerry Revish. Um, uh, older black man kind of looked like me a little bit, um, in, in Columbus, Ohio, who was the black man on the evening news. And, uh, there could only be one and he was, you know, with like one network. And I remember being so, you know, just taken by his, just his presence and his authority, because being a journalist, it is about being an authority on what's happening in the world. And was really incredible to see somebody who who literally looked like me being that in our city. And I remember when I um, left for, for college, I went to uh, Morehouse in Atlanta. And Atlanta is a very, very Black city mm-hmm. um, in some really remarkable ways. But one of the first things that stuck with me when, I, um, when we were coming in to the campus in this taxi was a billboard for the evening news and both of the anchors were Black that there was a black man and a black woman sitting together. And I thought, oh, this is a whole new world, you know? Um, And from there, I think I got like maybe a little bit more serious about about journalism. Mm -hmm. And so the book, first of all, it's amazing that a book like this hasn't been written before. How did no one else think to do this? You know, right? It is uh, an important book. It took you five years to write this and this is, yeah, your, it did. this is your first book. This has triggered you, right? Writing the book is something I, I identify with personally in your story because my late wife was a filmmaker, Adrienne Shelley. She wrote the movie Waitress, and she was murdered in 2006. And I made a documentary about her, which is on HBO. And making that documentary triggered so much for me. It just sent me right back to the day she was killed and all the weeks and months and years after that. And so... For you writing this book, it took you back, didn't it, to places that were yeah. very painful for you? It absolutely did. I think that um, that as creative people, we don't always understand the extent to which um, material really passes through us. 
And one of the things that I had always prided myself on was the fact that I could sort of intellectualize my work. I've always uh, written about Black life and always, like I've only ever wanted to cover Black life. And that means that every now and then you have to do some pretty hard stories. And um, I felt like I'd always kind of come out of that reporting unscathed. But this was the first time that I reported something and the process of putting it together was so hard on me. And I, I realized at the end of it that I had sort of metabolized a lot of what I was reporting, a lot of the stories that came through in my interviews that, you know, in, that in, in trying to make sense of them for readers, that they had to pass through my body in a way and that they did, you know, my blood pressure got to dangerous levels. Uh, I got heart palpitations and had to wear a heart monitor. Mm-hmm. I lost about 40 pounds. Um, it was a really, really, I could barely eat. It was a really tough time. Uh, and it wasn't just book nerves. Like I, uh, had nightmares about some of the things that I remembered or stories that I heard. And before we started this interview, we were talking briefly, and you mentioned a, a very interesting point which resonated with me, having come from a tragedy and having also been someone who dabbled in stand-up comedy for many years. You seem like a guy with a really good sense of humor, and you alluded to the challenge in doing press and talking about this book and talking about this incredibly important subject, yet allowing yourself an opportunity to have some humor injected into this conversation or just the way you do interviews. Like, can you be funny? Can you make a joke if you're trying to yeah. be serious about it? How do you deal with that? Yeah, no, it's like super tough to to uh, to sort of balance, you know, my sort of natural kind of inclinations and the things that I find to be funny about even this really tough subject matter with people's expectations of what's appropriate and also sort of what they want in talking about this. I have always taken the position that life is just absurd and that some of the hardest things about life are truly absurd. You know, like race and racism run all through this book. Racism is really an absurd thing and it makes like otherwise people um, less curious and less intelligent and less thoughtful. So, you know, every now and then it can be, you know, funny um, that the four characters that the book centers around, one is a former mayor of Baltimore, the other is a, a former drug dealer out of Newark. You have the son of a drug addict out of Yonkers and a woman named uh, Lenny Woodley, who was addicted to crack for decades in South Central Los Angeles. Um, Lenny has some of the most harrowing stories in the book. She's also the funniest person that I interviewed, she became addicted to crack because she liked the party, right? She was like the livest person at the party. She just stayed at the party too long. She uh, became exposed. She experimented with drugs in the wrong period um, and did not know what that substance would, would do to her life. But that didn't make her any less funny. It didn't make her any less lively that she was able to survive decades on the street because she was quick and funny and likable. And um, and I would say one of the hardest things in in putting the book together was being able to reflect the complexity of people that it's so easy to just flatten. Mm-hmm. A person could be a drug addict and also be funny and also be an asshole at times. Um, and that's all of us, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You don't have to smoke crack to be an asshole. I've met plenty of those people in my life. I may have even been one at one point. I don't know. Uh, um, yeah. so the book is, is when crack was king A people's history of a misunderstood era. What is most in- misunderstood? I don't think most people even know what crack is. Mm-hmm. That was something that really came out of my reporting early on. One of my main beats had been the criminal legal system for for many years. And in talking to people about how we got the system that we have, folks would sort of reference the crack epidemic in passing, but they never talked about it in the same terms, um, never seemed to agree on what happened. And I realized people really don't know what happened. That's why I wrote the book. But, you know, most folks think 
that crack was some sort of super drug and is a super drug that people try for the first time and either they die like Lynn Bias, supposedly, you know, mm -hmm. Lynn Bias did not smoke crack. He had consumed powdered cocaine before he died and he had a heart condition um, that led to his death. Um, so it's either you die or you're instantly addicted and you become a zombie. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just not true. Crack is the same exact substance as powder cocaine. Mm -hmm. It's just smokable. Right. Um, it undergoes a process uh, that uh, its its original name was Freebase, mm -hmm. which is to separate the base of a compound, sort of free it from its other elements, which then makes it smokable. Um, and by the way, and, a lot of us learned about freebasing for the first time through Richard Pryor, you know? Yes. And his yeah. brilliant comedy routine about setting his face on fire from freebasing. Yeah. And I remember at the time just thinking, the hell is freebase? But that is the genesis of the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. He had the incredible joke where he strikes the match and then he kind of bobs it up and down. He says, what's that? Oh, Richard Pryor running down the street. Right. Brilliant. <laughs> this is an interesting analogy because what we were saying before is the marriage of comedy and tragedy. And Pryor, not just with freebasing, but with his heart attack and racism and everything he experienced in his life growing up, being raised by a prostitute mother or grandmother, you know, he is explaining to us how you can be funny and tell yeah. horrible stories. And I think if you look at it from a historical perspective, he literally was someone who introduced into culture overall this idea of freebasing and the dangers of it, but he did it through a stand-up routine, which literally proves yeah. the point that you you not only can, but should use other forms like comedy to get your point across because it makes it more accessible, doesn't it? Yeah, that like it makes it more accessible and I think it also makes it more realistic because there are elements of the experience that you can get into that you actually can't when you're being super earnest and cautionary. Mm -hmm. You know, it's um, uh, difficult to uh, talk about people's experience when intoxicated by something like cocaine because uh, you don't want to, to not even encourage, I would say that you just don't want to expose people to ideas about being high. <laughs> you know, that there's always this fear of, if I say, for example, that crack is not any more addictive than powder cocaine, then people might say, hey, well, maybe I should go try some crack. No, <laughs> you know, please, please don't do that. But that's the kind of thing that you can more easily discuss in a joke. Uh, uh, there was a, I remember this great episode of the HBO show Girls where one of the characters is like hanging outside of a party and somebody um, hands her a joint and then she starts to feel weird. And then they tell her that they have laced the joint with, with, with crack. And she just proceeds to like freak out for like the rest of the episode. And I found that to be so funny because kids of my generation who grew up with dare and just say, no, it's the scariest thing. That, that like you could become like an accidental crackhead, so to speak. And just seeing that fear kind of like realized, you know, and it like in, in seeing someone play out exactly how terrifying that would be um, actually is funny in a way. What made you as a writer choose this subject to write about? So uh, this for me, it was such a, I mean, it was just an opportunity that was just staring me in the face. I had those questions growing up about what was going on in my neighborhood. And I had also come to understand that like, as a journalist, the stories that you want to write are ones that feel accessible to people and immediate and that they think they understand, uh, but don't actually, and you want to write something that feels big and important. When I found out that no one had written a, a authoritative history of crack, I was really surprised, right? Because it was something that I was looking for just to become a better reporter. I wanted to understand the criminal legal system. So I'm like, I'll just go find the book about crack. And, uh, and it didn't exist. So to me, it was an obvious opportunity to fill um, a hole in our, in our modern history. And it, it reminds me of something a, a mentor of mine, Danielle Smith, 
always says, which is that like the best journalism takes its its subject matter seriously. And I think that no one um, had written about the crack epidemic because people just hadn't taken it seriously yet. And and it created, you know, an opportunity for me to to kind of give it my best shot to to tell the story of cracks rise and fall, but also to try to include voices of individuals who who survived it and try to kind of like hopefully get toward a new way of doing history or to experiment with the form, I should say. The the fact that you can build a history not just of uh, official documents and reports, but also of people's memories. Mm-hmm. Because those, how people experience something is just as important as how it was documented. Do you think the perception might have been and still might be the crack epidemic was largely a black problem in the sense that AIDS was a gay problem and it just didn't resonate among people outside of those communities and therefore just didn't seem like something important enough to write about? Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's it completely that um, one of the sort of great tragedies I think of like American storytelling is that black people's lives are, are, are overlooked despite the fact that like black people are really at, I, I would say the bottom rung of our social system, which means that you can learn so much from black people's lives because we see so much of America really from the, from the bottom to the top. Uh, you know, you could take somebody like, let's say, Oprah Winfrey and chart her life. And she has gone from every rung of our social system. She has uh, uh, it experienced so much that, you know, the average billionaire, right? Like you could not learn as much from their life as you could from a person like Oprah Winfrey. So that's a bit of an aside. I was uh, saying, though, yes, that like when it comes to crack, people think that they understand it, that they think that they understand the crack epidemic. And it's as simple as that happened to black people because black people are black, (laughs) (laughs) which is, you know, and, and, and people abandon all curiosity about basic questions like, well, what exactly is crack? Or, you know, well, why did it happen to this group of people at this time? You know, something that was really interesting that I came across in my reporting is that the crack epidemic was really um, something that hit, um, major cities, that it hit, uh, uh, big cities, uh, hubs, not necessarily the South Mm. and, and the Midwest as much. And that had to do with the nature of black life in those places. And this is, you know, keeping in mind the fact that half of black people live in the South. Mm. So, you know, even though it was seen as this like black problem, it was really like a city problem that was associated with black people that lived in big cities. And, uh, and when I did the research into the cities that were hardest hit, what I found is they had all been great migration cities. These cities that black folks had left the South for, um, and moved to for industrial jobs largely. And that had become, um, um, areas where there was a strong black working class. In that when deindustrialization came in in the 70s, um, sort of late, late 60s, that what had been working class neighborhoods became uh, areas of concentrated poverty, i.e. ghettos. And, um, and that's what made those neighborhoods vulnerable to something like the crack epidemic. One, because people were dealing with the level of disaffection that made them want to check out, mm. that they were interested in drugs because they wanted to feel good, but also that there was a need for a local economy. So, you know, the crack epidemic, if you just look at the cities where it took hold, you can learn something about the nature of why people would want to do drugs or why a drug epidemic takes hold in a place. Uh, But people didn't ask those questions. I found really interesting what you started off saying at the start of your answer. It really explains why in 2023, we have this movement called Black Lives Matter, right? Because still, all these years later, the crack academic ended in 92, 93, but 30 years later, we're still having to explain 
why black lives matter. There are still people who don't understand, you know, like, why do you, all lives matter. You know, when you start trying to yeah. have with people, it's like you want to bang your head in the wall. But it's like, if you're not black, and I'm not, shockingly, I'm not black. <laughs> you could be a very, very light-skinned black man if I squint. What if I told you I would? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you lower the the light on your laptop or whatever, like I can. Be, yeah. yeah. But I've had that conversation with people, and you're like, it, it, yes, all lives matter, right? It's but it's not. Yeah. That's that you're missing the point. And so that crack is a black problem the way AIDS is a gay problem. It's like it may have been a black problem per se, but it certainly impacted all of society. And it's important to recognize the latter part of your answer, which is why it happened, why it just exploded into this epidemic. Tell us about the Berkeley chem students. Oh, yeah, this is... This, this I find fascinating. <laughs> I knew writing this book that I had to answer this question of where exactly crack came from, mm -hmm. because there is a, uh, a longstanding conspiracy theory that the CIA invented it. And dropped it into black neighborhoods to to disrupt them. Was um, that before or after they brought JFK Jr. back? <laughs> like cry cryogenically. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, and, and the funny thing is that there is some truth to the C I mean, you know, every conspiracy theory has a nugget of truth in it. That's what makes it plausible, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's some truth to that. But in terms of the actual invention of crack, I um the earliest um sort of mentioned that I could find for its recipe, so to speak, is a book called The Pleasures of Cocaine. And this was published in the late 70s by a small independent book publisher um, that ran uh, the, the publishing house out of a head shop in the Bay Area, um, basically just a place where you could buy bongs and drug paraphernalia. And I tracked down um, one of the co-owners of this publisher was she and her uh, longtime uh, partner uh, ran it. And she told me about this group of college students at Berkeley um, who were chemistry students who were just drug enthusiasts. And they liked to find different ways to consume drugs. So they figured out, right, this sort of rebasing process, or again, where you separate the base of a compound from its elements, <clears throat> I'm sorry, from its other elements, uh, making it smokable. And that's what they did with cocaine. And it became popular among this group. And then they shared that recipe with her partner who put it in his little pamphlet about how fun cocaine was. Um, and I have from other accounts, interviews that I did in Los Angeles of um, some folks that sold crack pretty early on. And they talked about learning it from uh, a pimp who was friends with the group of guys in the Bay Area <laughs> who were experimenting with, with cocaine. Um, and even uh, Freeway Ricky Ross, who's one of the biggest uh, Bay Area drug dealers, um, no, sorry, not Bay Area, uh, 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 Los Angeles uh, crack, crack dealers, um, says that he learned how to make what he called Ready Rock from uh, a pimp, like a neighborhood pimp. Mm -hmm. who had some ties to the Bay Area. So um, I feel like I can say pretty authoritatively that the genesis of crack starts uh, among Bay Area college students that were just having fun with cocaine. Mm -hmm. And um, and what that reminds me of, right, is that we lived that, you know, in that time, cocaine was glamorous and it was, uh, I think, very commonplace that people saw it as a party drug that was relatively harmless. Um, and people can kind of like use their imaginations to think about how today marijuana is, um, I think fairly commonplace and it is something that people do at parties and people experiment with it, right? People talk about making brownies and oils and dabs, whatever that is. I, I still don't know. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and so that can kind of help you imagine how someone might be attracted to something like crack mm -hmm. because people already had a relationship to cocaine mm -hmm. and they were interested in just another way of consuming it. And uh, to take that analogy a little bit further, to kind of understand the difference between crack and powdered cocaine, you can think about the difference between something like smoking weed in a joint, which will make you instantly high for a short period of time 
versus consuming it in an edible mm -hmm. where you could eat an edible and an hour later, you'd be like, oh, like I'm not even high. And then you're higher than you've ever been for the next two days. Yeah. It's kind of like um, the uh, colonoscopy fluid you drink. Like an hour later, you're like, <laughs> this is nothing. And then all of a sudden, like nine hours of hell. Oh, <laughs> uh, and I've actually, despite being 35, I've had a colonoscopy. So you know what I'm talking um, about. I know exactly what you're talking about. They make you drink a gallon yeah. of laxative. But it kicks in like an hour <laughs> later, Like you're, you're, but you're not expecting. You're like, ah, this is nothing. Yeah. So, 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 you know, when people think about why crack addicts behave differently or why crack seem to be a different kind of drug, it has everything to do with how things are consumed and how they then break down in the body. That anything that you smoke is super intense for a short period of time but then it goes away quickly. So then you binge it as a way of staying high. Interesting. And that's, that's what made crack seemingly more addictive, but it's, it's the same substance. This is either going to be a really dumb question or a really interesting question. <laughs> so I will tell you. The jury's <laughs> in your research, and I'm, I'm doing quotes with my fingers now. In your research, have you ever smoked crack? Have you ever snorted crack? You know, it's it's not a bad question. People have uh, have like asked me that. My like friends mostly are like, "Hey, I'm like, are you going to try any crack?" Um, hey, that no, four day binge I, I was on, it was all research. <laughs> <laughs> I am, um, funny enough, terrified of drugs. Mm -hmm, me too. That um, I, as a very anxious person, I'm just convinced that my heart would stop immediately, mm -hmm. that my head would explode. Um, I smoke weed. And I am caffeine addicted, mm -hmm. um, certainly. I, I just stopped putting sugar in my coffee because my dad tells me that sugar is cancer food. Um, those are his exact uh, words. He's not wrong. Uh, but no, yeah, I mean, I don't have a great relationship to substances that I, mm -hmm. you know, think that um, having grown up the way that I did, I am sufficiently fearful of what they would do to me. Uh, Despite, you know, the fact that I know that people use drugs recreationally all the time. Um, and it's funny, this sort of reminds me of something we were talking about earlier, which is some of the, the racial double standards. And, you know, as I have worked and lived and kind of advanced professionally and gone from my little small town in Columbus to lots of big cities and working in media, so many people do drugs. Oh, and it's crazy. I... I feel so Pollyanna and scandalized as this kid of the crack era who was terrified of everything to see people just doing lines at like a work party. Doesn't it amaze you when you see that? Like, I it's, mean, it's, I, it's out of control. I think about the, that pitcher for the Pirates, what was his name, who uh, threw a perfect game when he was on acid. Could you imagine that? Wow. Um, I mean, you know what's funny, though, is that Writing this book, I still am a nervous person, and I think that I probably just am not. Like, I'm just not interested mm -hmm. in, in like most substances, um, especially the ones that make you feel numb, like like opioids. I don't, I don't have anything that I need to numb, um, and I don't think I need to feel more energetic or excited. That coffee does that uh, pretty well for me, but you know, we are just these complex chemical machines mm -hmm. that run on substances and that one of the sort of tragedies of something like the crack era is that it sort of makes crack seem like this super drug when in reality people have all different types of addictions and if we just understand it as one substance mm -hmm. that is addictive and where there is a danger for overdose um but it's a substance just like caffeine's a substance most people in America, I think, have a serious sugar addiction and people uh, do not comment on, I mean, people with like literally, you know, have a family history of diabetes. And the thing that I should probably be, be, be most afraid of <laughs> in life is sugar. Right. I, I have high blood pressure as a person that's a constant worrier. Mm -hmm. I have to be mindful of my salt intake that, uh, that we should have a different conversation about substance and substance abuse right. so that true. goes beyond just demonizing specific mm -hmm. substances based on who's using them. Right. In the book's introduction, you very briefly talk about this woman, Michelle, who was in your neighborhood growing up. 
But I, I believe that the reference to her does play a much more significant role in the overall writing of this book. Yeah, it absolutely does. Some of my earliest memories are laying in bed at night and listening to my neighbor Michelle's music because it would get to be about, I think, eight o'clock and that's when her activities would, would start. And um, she loved this song by Patti LaBelle, If Only You Knew. And she would play it on a loop and, um, and the lyrics uh, go, uh, you don't even suspect could probably care less about the changes I'm going through. And I remember being about five or so and understanding that she was trying to communicate something like you could feel her like heartbreak. And um, I maybe saw her once. Um, you know, she was a young black woman, typically was holed up in her uh, apartment throughout the day. And I guess she was an addict who was mostly active at night. But I remember my mom would, you know, drag the house phone, like the long cord, <laughs> room to room, complaining about our neighbor, Michelle, from down the street is what she always called her, um, to her friends about how she had all types of people coming in and out of her house and it was bad for the neighborhood and there were kids around and stuff like that. And, um, and once I was on our porch with my older sister, Brittany, um, who, uh, knew everything as, as older sisters do. And we saw this, um, this middle-aged woman and a young girl go to Michelle's house and they were, it was a Sunday. They were dressed beautifully for church and very upright looking. And I was like, Hey, like, who are those people going to, to Michelle's house? And she said, um, I think that that's Michelle's mom and her daughter. So they look just like her. Mm -hmm. And it blew my mind at five that these respectable people were family to somebody that was a crack addict. And it, it planted a seed in my head, which is that whenever I see a person who seems to be going through something, whether it's like a mental health crisis or an unhoused person on the street, that I don't feel, I guess the, I mean, I don't know how, how other people feel, but I, but I don't feel that level of distance that I assume other people feel because I remember that Michelle had a mom and Michelle had a daughter and Michelle literally lived in the same neighborhood as us, right? Like she was as close as, as that. So yeah, I think that that stuck that I, you know, I don't know what happened to Michelle. Um, I would love to know, I've, I've like looked for, um, but I think that I wanted to understand her better. And that's a part of why I wrote the book. You mentioned earlier the the four characters, Kurt Schmoke, who was the former Baltimore mayor and an early decriminalization advocate, Elgin Swift, a Yonkers boy with a drug-addicted father, Lenny Woodley, an ex-addict and sex worker, and Sean McRae, who co-founded the notorious Newark, New Jersey trafficking group, The Zoo Crew. It's an interesting structure you put together and how you weaved history with the story of these four people <clears throat> over a period of about 60 years. How did you arrive at that structure? Because it's very um, unique. Yeah, thank you for that. It, um, hopefully it, it pays off. It was... <laughs> well, you was made it to this it podcast, was... so I'd say you're, you're, you've hit the big time. Yeah, yeah I'm doing all right. I... Um, I knew that I wanted to tell Cracks Rise and Fall. Like I knew it was really important to get that official history documented. So about literally half the book, like I, I tried to split it, the, like the word count in half, mm -hmm. that about half the book is the, the history, um, the, the official history as told by researchers and politicians and newspapers at the time. Um, and then the other half, uh, it's these narratives. And that is to to complement and to, in some cases, supplement the official history with people's memories of how they experienced it. Um, and I weave in and out of those um, stories uh, of these four individuals because it seemed necessary to connect them, that they're in different cities and they have different uh, perspectives on the crack epidemic based on how they were situated but that their lives do touch in interesting ways. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, Lenny, for example, who was a crack addict for, for decades, she had uh, a young son um, 
who she had a very distant relationship to. And she talked about him quite a bit in our interviews. And I, you know, wasn't able to interview him. He wasn't interested in in being interviewed. But I was able to talk to to Elgin in Yonkers, whose father was an addict. Mm. So, you know, and Elgin's father um, very recently passed away. He uh, had dementia in his later years and was unable to to talk about uh, his 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 life. But it, I like to think that Lenny and Elgin are in conversation with each other about about addiction, mm-hmm. about you know who Lenny wishes she was as a mother, um, what Elgin wishes he had from a parent, what it was like for him growing up with a parent that was an addict. That um, that to me is is a powerful thing, and I think that hopefully it it. It uh, says something about the connectedness of people who who survived the crack era, that they experienced something together. Media is something that's played an important role. Almost it's like the fifth character in your book, in a way, how music and TV and, and film and characters have played a role in our drug culture and fighting the crack epidemic and the war on drugs. What What about that speaks to you the most? Yep. One of the hidden things about the war on drugs that I was able to uncover in reporting the book, um, I call it the very special episode, which is that the, the, the Reagans, with their background in Hollywood and their connection to um, lots of folks that made content and marketing, that they sent out uh, messages to studio heads saying basically that they wanted to put more anti-drug messages in television. So lots of writers would send them um, scripts for sitcoms and lots of different um, uh, made-for-TV movies. And this is how we got the very special episode, which is your favorite sitcom would have one uh, story where it was about gun violence or it was about someone you know using speed um, Nancy Reagan even made an appearance on different strokes. I think some folks might might remember that. Um, and beyond that, that they also gave lots of funding to the uh, an organization called um, the National Institute for a Drug Free America. And that's how we got the this is your brain on drugs messaging of the 80s and 90s and just that bombardment of PSAs uh, that were um, in some ways effective because they made people like me terrified of drugs, but they also spread lots of misinformation and stigma about um, about about drug use. So um, if you are somebody that watched a lot of TV in the 80s and you remember Jesse from Saved by the Bell mm-hmm. saying, I'm so excited, I'm so excited, I'm so scared because she was on speed, <laughs> that you have uh, Nancy Reagan really to thank for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's so interesting. In our final moments, I want to read a passage from the end of your book. It's, quote, the crack ep- epidemic is over. We should celebrate that and the fact that black America survived it and the war on drugs that followed. People of good conscience should also hold to account the individuals and entities that helped spread the epidemic and those that organized the draconian response merely for political gain. Then and only then can we begin the work of healing and repair, reversing unjust laws, challenging the myths of that era, treating PTSD in survivors. If we fail to do this, to reckon with this history, we are doomed to repeat it. When you look at the opioid crisis today and all the kids dying from fentanyl, have we not learned? Are we repeating it? Is there another epidemic that's occurring in this country with just a different drug? Yep, absolutely. I think that um, we have not learned our lesson from the crack epidemic that, again, we we decided that that, that happened to those people for reasons beyond us. So we just moved on. And what we, as a nation, um, did was we maintained the vulnerabilities uh, in our society, that the sort of cracks, no pun intended, that people fall through um, in our in our social safety net. And that's a few things. So one, it's the this 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 word that I keep using, disaffection, 
which is people feeling hopeless, being, you know, living in such a way and, and living in such conditions that can make you uh, want to check out and also not having options to make your life any better can, can create a, a hopelessness that, that, that makes folks turn to drugs. That because we didn't take that seriously when it was happening to Black and Latino people in big cities, we didn't keep an eye out for it when it hit middle America. You know, when the Rust Belt completely dried up and people weren't, you know, able to find jobs in the same ways that guys that it worked for airplane factories in LA couldn't. That like we didn't make that connection. So um so that has happened again and people are again in a position where they want to use drugs. Beyond that, we missed an opportunity to create a public health response during the crack epidemic that what we did was we created a criminal justice response and we created this dragnet that we applied across communities of color and laws that kept people warehoused in, in prisons. So when the opioid epidemic happened, that was all we had to offer. We didn't have addiction services or up and running harm reduction programs. We were like, we got the police, we got jail. <laughs> so we're still trying to to undo that, despite the fact that I think that there's more empathy for opioid addicts, in part because many of them have been white. Like the face of the opioid epidemic is changing, is becoming more diverse with something like fentanyl, which is readily accessible and it's being laced into lots of other drugs. Um, so I think that, yeah, that like we are suffering now with opioids because we didn't learn those lessons. Um, and I, it doesn't seem like the, like the folks in charge are getting any smarter. Like I, you know, uh, remember about a year ago, the Biden administration announced that it would be helping to fund harm reduction programs, local harm reduction programs that were doing things like giving out fentanyl test strips and also Narcan, which is a, an incredible life-saving drug when people are having overdoses and, um, and syringes and also pipes and, uh, the headline that ran across lots of organizations, news organizations is Biden administration gives out crack pipes. And that was enough to almost derail completely, mm -hmm. to like completely disrupt the distribution of fentanyl test strips in Narcan. So, you know, the, the specter of the crack epidemic, which the crack epidemic's over, that people are not um, uh, making crack their first drug of choice anymore as they were in the 80s, that mm -hmm. most of the users are veteran users who started in the 80s and 90s. But just the fear of that um, could be used politically and actually disrupt life-saving measures for another group of people today. That was, uh, it was really disturbing and like sad to me. And we also haven't learned it when it comes to our policies that somebody like Joe Biden, who has his hands all over all of the major drug and crime legislation going back to the Reagan administration. Um, he just hasn't done enough. Mm -hmm. So something like the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between crack and powdered cocaine, which says that basically, let's say 100 grams of powdered cocaine and one gram of crack get you the same sentence of mm -hmm. five years, mm -hmm. um, that that was reduced under the Obama administration to 18 to 1. But it still exists. So despite the fact that we know that it's the same substance and all of this empathy that we have now for drug addicts and all of the protesting about how oh, we got it wrong and we, and we didn't know, we couldn't know, that we still haven't reduced the, or eliminated the, the, the disparity. Um, and this is to say nothing of the fact that Joe Biden has been very uh, vocal about the fact that his son Hunter um, was a crack addict for, for many years and has struggled with addiction. At the same time that Joe Biden was advocating for the death penalty for people in possession of crack, you know, we just have to get right on a number of accounts that we need to um, create better healthcare systems to help people actually um, with, with recovery. We also need to beef up harm reduction programs that keep people alive until they can get into recovery. 
And we need to stop spending money on a criminal justice response that we know doesn't work. Donovan, this has been a fascinating conversation. You'll have to come back and continue it at some point. Um, you've actually inspired me to write my own book. I'm, I think I'm going to tackle the epidemic that exists among white people who are spending way too much money on expensive coffee drinks. Uh, big problem in America today. I'm going to be the one to tackle that. And I owe it all to you. Uh, but no, in, all, in all seriousness, uh, thanks again for coming on and uh, good luck with the book and all the media hits you're doing. It's, it's really important that you're out there talking about this stuff. Thanks, man. I definitely appreciate it. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Andy. That's episode 97. Please give us some feedback. Leave us a message at 845. 3077446 email back roomandy at gmail.com or tweet to Andy Astroy and don't forget to rate and review and please follow or subscribe and you'll be notified every time we post new episodes I want to thank very powerful producer co-editor and engineer Maddie Rosenberg very beautiful co-producer Jen Hamoud Krikli Gail for our artwork Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio. And a big thank you again to our guest Donovan X. Ramsey. See you next week. I won't be back, but I hope you will be.